Hey, welcome to Good Lion. So in our last episode, we pointed out the most common way of defining righteousness is just right. Someone who is morally right. Someone who follows all the rules. But we learned that in the Hebrew scriptures, the word for righteousness, tzedakah, has less to do with right behavior and more to do with right relationship. Jesus sees our broken behavior, but he's more concerned with the broken relationship between us and him. I showed the episode to my friend Brian Higgins, our editor-in-chief over at Good Lion, and he had this to say. He was like, yeah, well, there's grace, but what about sin? And he made an important point. Sin is a concept that's all throughout the biblical story. How does God feel about sin? Does he care if we sin? If we're trying to live a life that's righteous, shouldn't we also try to live a life without sin? That's what today's episode is all about, the connection between righteousness and sin. And to start out, we ask an important question. How does Jesus deal with someone caught up in sin? For that answer, we turn to the story of the woman caught in adultery. Stay with us. So this story is in John chapter 8. Picture this. Jesus goes across to the Mount of Olives, and then he's back at the temple, and tons of people are coming down to hear him speak. And so he sits down and he's preaching to them. When suddenly a bunch of Pharisees bring in this woman and they say, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. She's slept with somebody who was not her husband. And they grab her and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus. And she, I mean, she just got pulled out of bed. So she's wrapped up in a sheet. She's embarrassed. She's ashamed. She's literally been caught in the act. And they say to Jesus, this woman has been caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders that we should stone someone like this. What do you say? You see, in this moment, the Pharisees are operating underneath this understanding of what righteousness is. Remember, we've talked about how one of the most common ways to look at righteous is just being right. And if you're wrong, you're not righteous. And so these Pharisees come to Jesus saying, this woman is not right. She has broken the law. She is not righteous. Therefore, she should be stoned to death. Now, this was all a stunt. This was a trap to set up Jesus. They wanted him to basically say either one or two things. They wanted him to say either, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. We should just just look the other way and move on. And they, they knew that if Jesus did that, the people would say, what on earth? We thought this guy was a teacher of God and he's actually ignoring the rules. Or they thought maybe Jesus would pick up a stone and throw it. And then they'd be able to say to the people, see, he's just like all the others. They were trying to trap him. But then in verses six through eight, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. And they kept at him. They kept saying, Jesus, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? But then he straightened up and said, listen, the sinless one among you, you go first. You throw the first stone. And then bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. And we don't, we don't know exactly what he wrote. Many people believe different things. Some people think he 
wrote the names of the Pharisees. Other people think that he actually wrote specific sins that these Pharisees had committed. But whatever he wrote, it obviously had some massive effect because in verses 9 through 10, it says, hearing this, they walked away one after another, starting with the oldest and down to the youngest. So they leave, they get out of there. And then they're left alone. And Jesus goes to the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? Does anyone here condemn you? And she says, no one, master. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. This story is so powerful. I mean, think about it. This woman, she's, by all earthly standards, when we think of the word righteous, when we think of it as whether you're right or wrong, she was wrong. She committed sin. She slept with another man. And so the Pharisees are saying, she is not right. She is wrong. The right thing to do, the righteous thing to do, would be to stone her. But remember what we learned in the last episode. Tim Mackey shared with us how the word righteous in the scriptures is sedek. And that word is a Hebrew word which means not right behavior, but right relationship. To be righteous is to be in a right relationship with someone else. And so Jesus looks at this woman and the Pharisees are concerned first of all by her behavior, the wrong things that she's done. But Jesus looks past that and he sees the bigger issue. This woman is not righteous because she does not have a right relationship with God. Her relationship between her and God has been broken. Her sin has separated her. She needs help. She needs rescuing. And so Jesus looks at her and his concern is not how wrong she is, but how wrong the separation between her and him is. Fast forward to what the apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 verses 10 through 12. He says, no one is righteous. No, no one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Jesus points that out in that moment. He looks to the Pharisees and he says, who here is sinless? Is anyone here sinless? Is there anyone here who has never committed a wrong against God? Is there anyone here who has never broken the relationship between them and God by the wrong things they've done? If that person's here, by all means, let them throw the first stone. Now think about it. There was one person there who fit that description. There was one person there who had never sinned. There was one person there who had a perfectly right relationship between him and the Father. And it was Jesus. It was Jesus. Jesus was the one righteous. And he says, let the righteous one, let he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then he doesn't. Oh man, this story is so good. And then he writes something on the ground and everybody leaves because they realize how unrighteous they are, just like the woman. Yeah, they their sin might look different, but they have sin. And then 
Jesus looks at the woman. Catch this, catch this, because this is just so stinking good. He looks at this woman, and his primary goal is righteousness. It's, I want to fix what's broken between us. And so the first thing he does is he loves her, he helps her, he frees her, he proves to this woman how loved she is by God, how accepted she is by God. This woman who in this moment was so full of shame and emptiness and hopelessness, in her mind she thought, I have done wrong and now I'm going to die because of it. And Jesus offers her freedom. He offers her life. His primary goal, his first chief goal, is restoring the broken relationship between her and him. And once that's done, then he says, go and sin no more. Do you catch that? That's a statement about behavior. It's a statement about not doing things that are wrong. But think about the position of where that statement is. What comes first? The relationship. I love you. I want to help you. I want to free you. That's number one priority. And then he says, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus does care about our behavior. Jesus doesn't just want to save us and then say, yeah, now you go do your thing. No, he cares about our behavior, but listen, he doesn't love us because of our behavior. He saved us despite of our behavior. He saved us even though we were so unrighteous that it would cost him his life to save us, that he would have to die to save us. He still saved us. And then he attacks the wrongness of our behavior. Why? Why does he do it? Because he loves us. Because he knows that that wrong behavior keeps us from him. It keeps us from his heart. It keeps us from his purposes. He's a good parent who doesn't want to see his children get hurt. His heart is compassion. He knows that sins hurt us. Just as they hurt him and his heart, they also hurt us and destroy us and our lives. And so Jesus, he starts with right relationship, the true meaning of the word. And then he moves on to right behavior. And that's, that's the thing, right relationship, once it's established, right behavior is what follows. So many times as Christian kids, and I'm just speaking from experience as someone who grew up in the church, we want to fix our behavior before the relationship is even fixed. We want to do all the right things. We have this Christian to-do list in our mind of things where it's like, this is what I should do. This is what I shouldn't do. If I do these things, I'm going to make all the religious adults in my life happy and, and pleased with me. And, and so we think of it as, I have to do these things and then I'll be okay with God. And God says, no, you're already okay with me. I made you okay with me on the cross. Accept that and then live out of it. 
please, please get this message. Jesus is primarily concerned with right relationship. And then if we live into that right relationship, right behavior will flow outward of it. Not always, we'll make mistakes, absolutely. But when we do every single time, Jesus will be ready to pick us back up when we fall. Because that is the relationship. It's a loving father. A good father loves his children so much that no matter how many times they do stupid things, no matter how many times they mess up, it doesn't stop them from being that father's child. That's the right relationship. Even though right behavior isn't always there, the right relationship always is. That's God's heart for you and me. He wants right behavior, and we should want right behavior, but not because we're trying to earn acceptance. We're already accepted. We're already loved. We're already forgiven. And so out of that righteousness, righteous behavior should flow. In my own personal experience of this, the more I understand how loved I am by Jesus and how forgiven I am by Jesus and how much Jesus sacrificed for me and how no matter what, no matter what stupid things I do, God the Father sees me as righteous, as someone who is in a right relationship with him because of Jesus and his right relationship with God the Father and with me. The more I understand these things, the less I want to sin the less I want to give in to temptation, the more I want to run after all the things that Jesus has for me. I hope you get that. I hope that's your takeaway. You're loved. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you're righteous. You're covered. Let's live out of that righteousness that we have. Coming up next on the show, a discussion between me and Brian Higgins about what sin is and what role it has to play in the discussion on righteousness. Stay with us. So Brian, let's talk about one of our favorite subjects, sin. Oh, the fun one. <laughs> it's so good. Um, so last episode, I played it for you. And one of the thing, first things that you said to me was, this is great. And I love how we're defining righteousness. But what about sin? We do have to talk about sin. And what, what motivated you to go there? Like what was running through your mind? Well, it definitely wasn't a desire to contradict anything that you were saying. I thought everything about the grace of Jesus and the way that his love offers us real righteousness, all of that is 100% true. It is worth us preaching and teaching and meditating on the place where it is easy to go wrong in the other direction is to give up on the problem of sin and say, well, we're covered. So mm. I guess it's all good. Like the relationship is right. Like we've been made complete. And and especially like we should say that we can never do anything to make ourselves more complete or more loved by God. Mm. But that doesn't mean we need to give up on teaching and thinking about the danger of and damage that sin creates. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. It's important for people to walk away understanding that sin is damaging. Um, 
it is something that is harmful to us. And, and God, as a he's a good father, he's a good God. He doesn't want his children to be harmed. Um, so often I used to think of sin as just a list of sort of, you know, God's preferences. Like here's the things mm-hmm. that he really likes and here's the things that he doesn't like. And if you do these things that he doesn't like, he's going to be very mad at you. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, how do you define sin? When you preach to people, when you talk to people about sin, what's your definition? There's a couple places I like to go with people on that. The first is I like to just go back to Genesis 3. Mm. You know, to, to understand something, a lot of times going to the introduction of that thing is really helpful. So the introduction of sin was God telling humanity, I know what's good and right for you, and I want you to walk within that. Mm. And mankind looked at God and said, but what if we tried it our way instead? Yeah, defining good and evil for themselves. Yeah, Yeah. that kind of spirit of I can define what's best for me, Hmm. that is the real heart of sin. And and the second place I go with people kind of adds to that. Um, There's, I forget who first explained this to me. It's a very common preaching analogy that I've heard a ton. Sin was an archery term. Hmm. And so you'd have archers that were aiming at these targets and they were shooting at all these distances. And obviously you're aiming to hit the target. You're aiming to hit the bullseye. You're trying to be more accurate than all the people next to you. Uh, And one of the things that could happen at times, especially the further away you were, is sometimes you'd miss the target completely. Hmm. And when that happened, everyone needed to be warned because now there's just a rogue arrow looking for something to hit. (laughs) Right. And the thing that they would yell to warn everyone was sin. Hmm. Something has missed the mark. (laughs) I just am imagining someone yelling, sin! Like, imagine if we did that at a mall today. Like, you're just around other people and someone is, like, a little less kind than they should be. And we just run around shouting, sin! And just, like, we go get them. Yeah, we would look very self-righteous doing that. Um, Yeah, we should. I'm not bringing this up to say this is a great idea and we should all do it. But rather, it simply illustrates the idea that the way that the word sin was used in that context was to say something has missed the mark. It has not done what it is supposed to do. Right. So sin is anything that misses the mark of who God made us to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to this idea of relationship, I think that God, when he creates humans, he creates them in right relationship with him, which means like it's defined. I am your God. I am your king. I'm your best friend. What what I believe is best for you, I want you to understand that it is the right thing. It's the good thing. It's kind of like, yes. um, I remember I was hanging out in... Um, Northern Ireland with um, the pastor of a church called Rehope Belfast. And he had his little son Ruben with him. And we were at the, it was a park that was basically like a C.S. Lewis museum. And there's all these like Narnia statues everywhere, which is really cool. That um, was the perfect park. It was really cool. It was great. But Ruben basically wanted to run in every direction into the street, into traffic, into cars. Like he, I've never seen he's probably like a three-year-old or a two-year-old. He's really little, but I've never seen a kid so like rebellious at that age where basically Mm. the dad just so wanted him to stay with him and enjoy the beautiful Mr. Tumnus statue or the Aslan statue. (laughs) But he wanted to go run into the street and get hit by cars. And it's not that the father was like, "I, I hate you so much, you stupid kid for running into the street he loved him. And so he constantly was like running after him and grabbing him and holding him close. And, and that was just this picture I had 
in my mind of like the righteousness of the father, the right thing for him to do as the father in that relationship is to protect his kid from running into the street and getting hit by cars. Um, it's not to take the kid and smack him around for it. It's, it's to prevent him. It's to try to step in and create roadblocks to him to keep him from doing these things that are wrong. And that's the thing that we can miss when we are only focused on the grace of God in salvation. Hmm. When we're just thinking about his grace, like, yes, the grace of God undoes the effects of sin. It undoes the damage of sin. It, It undoes the way that sin ruins our relationship with Jesus in various ways. However, sin is still a dangerous thing. And just because we have received, or or I should say, just because the grace of God has brought us back to that right relationship with him, doesn't mean that we are free from the way that sin can shape us in ways that are anti what God would have for us. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think when we commit sin willingly, we're breaking relationship with God by not allowing him to be our father. And he, he actually allows us to do that. He gives us the ability to make our own choice. It would be like if, like I said, in that illustration of the little boy and the father, um, the father, by protecting his kid, he's in that right relationship with him. But if the kid was just like, dad, forget you, I want to go run into the street and do whatever I want. And he goes off and does it he's not allowing the father to actually do what the father is supposed to do. He's preventing the father from fulfilling his role in the relationship. So for us, when we sin, what we're saying to God is, I don't want you to be my father. I don't want you to be my king. I want to define what's right on my own. And let's even bring it to a less extreme example. You know, that example, it's life and death. And so it makes makes the point very clear. Even with something much smaller, you're still allowing problems to enter into a relationship. So I think about just my wife and I. Like When I wake up in the morning, I completely forget that my bed exists. Like (laughs) Covers are everywhere. Things are wherever. I just walk out and I'm on to bigger and better things. That's how my mind works. Same. My wife, almost every morning, the first thing she does is she makes the bed. Like (laughs) That's something that she cares about. And so there have been times where she will ask me, like, hey, can you do this task. Can you make the bed? Can you wash the dishes? Whatever. And even when I willfully choose not to do those things, it's not that we go from married to unmarried as much as we can, through willful bad choices, allow tension to build within the relationship. And there is an element where it's not to say that if if the Christian sins, they're the kid that's running into the street that's about to be killed and no longer be in relationship with God, but rather you're letting an unnecessary tension slip into a relationship that you will enjoy more than any of those other things that will bring that tension with it. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. And, and I think that the picture that we get of Jesus is someone who, despite how many times we do run into the street or refuse to make our bed or whatever, fill in the blank. What, yeah, no, whatever no, analogy you want to use. Right. No matter how much tension we allow into the relationship, he is not so offended by it or so disgusted by it or so put off by it that he doesn't stop chasing after us. 
Like mm-hmm. he, he's willing to run into traffic to rescue the kid and even take a hit by the car if he needs to. Uh, he is always making the bed for us. You know, all these analogies. Yeah, he, definitely. He never gives up and he's relentless in that. And I think for me, something that's been helpful has been reframing. I wouldn't say reframing. I don't know if this makes sense. I'm not saying um, completely redefining how I view sin because a lot of these analogies, like the classic one of the arrow and missing the mark, those are good and helpful. So it's not replacing those, but it's more just creating some shelf space for another way of thinking about sin in my mind. A good way of that for me has been thinking of sin not just as a list of rules, not just as, you know, a judicial concept where when you sin, you've broken the law and therefore there's punishment that comes. I, I feel like a lot of Christians, especially if they read a lot of the Apostle Paul, that's kind of their main context of thinking of sin. It's it's rules that are broken and then there's punishment that happens. Um, I think if we go back to page one of the Bible and look at Adam and Eve in Genesis, I think that we can see that when that fruit was eaten, when that disobedience happened, it's, we're told that they were exposed to something called the knowledge of good and evil. And what that did was basically it poisoned humanity. Like sin was this force that wasn't just, oh, you, God said don't eat the apple and you ate the apple. That's strike one and now you have one against you on the list of sins that you will have in your life. But instead, when that fruit was eaten, what happens to humanity is they are broken. Like they are poisoned to their core, not just humanity, but the earth itself, humanity, existence, all of this is corrupted beyond repair. And when I think of sin, I do think of it that way. I think of it as a disease and a sickness. And the only cure for it is the sacrifice that Jesus made. Yeah, I, I think you you use the phrase corrupted beyond repair. I think if I could refine that slightly Hmm. corrupted beyond self-repair that's why you're our editor-in-chief i do what i can (laughs) yeah because it's it's not an irreparable thing in the sense of there's nothing that can be done about it but there's nothing we can do personally to fix it or undo it yes and that's where the whole righteousness conversation comes in because we as humans are constantly trying to repair our own brokenness and the way that i do it personally is I do things that are good to feel good about myself. And that makes me forget the things that I've done that are wrong and sweep those under the rug because now I want to focus on the good that I've done. But in reality, the the scripture tells us that none of our good deeds matter at all. Like we're still going to be judged for the wrong that we've done. And that's where Jesus comes in because with his righteousness he gives to us, it's, it's him saying, God will look at you and say, you are in right relationship with me because of my son. And that that blows me away. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At this point in the show, I want to stop for a minute and just talk about a problem I think a lot of Christians struggle with, and that's the burden of trying to get right with God. In my time as a youth pastor, I've honestly seen so many kids struggling to feel like they are okay with God, to feel like they are accepted by God, to feel like they're loved by God, because there's this constant guilt and this constant shame that follows them around everywhere they go because they know deep down how flawed they are. 
we spend our lives trying to get right with God. And it feels like climbing a mountain. God is at the top, we're down below. And we think if I can just climb this mountain by doing good deeds, by doing religious things, by going to church and reading my Bible and praying, by having good days, then I'll be okay, then I'll reach the top, then God will love me. What's sad for so many kids caught in this cycle is that when they eventually sin, and they do because they're human, they shift into this backsliding period where they just, they feel like, you know, they were taking two steps forward and then they sin and it feels like taking 10 steps backwards and you can sense yourself sliding down that mountain and you can see that ideal of God farther and farther away and you can just slip into hopelessness and despair. I think so many young people are in that place They don't feel right with God. They want so desperately to be right with God. And they feel like going to youth camps and retreats, that's how they get right with God, that mountaintop experience. It feels like, you know, you're jumping straight to the top and, you know, coming to an event or a camp, a retreat, it's getting close to God. It's getting right with God. You know, it's been a rough year. I've sinned a lot, but it's camp. You know, it's time to get right. But then what happens? Inevitably, you go to that camp, you go to that conference, you go to that retreat. Things are great. You have a great experience. But then you come home from that. And a few days later, you sin. You mess up. You you fall back into that same cycle and you just feel it all slipping away. And it's this progression of feeling really spiritual around that time of that event. But then weeks and weeks and months pass and you feel yourself drifting farther and farther away from God. And there's this hopelessness because the struggle is deep down. You feel like you'll never be right. You will always be wrong. And no matter how hard you try, you will never actually be right with God. For anyone struggling with this, this is what I want to say to you. I want you to get this. I want you to listen really carefully. You can't get right with God from going to a camp. You can't get right with God by going to a conference. You can't get right with God by going to church. Because if you have Jesus, you already are right. Did you catch that? Do you get what I'm saying? God's righteousness, it's it's right relationship. It's Jesus saying, you had a broken relationship with the Father, but now because of me, your relationship with him is right. He did that on the cross. He made that happen on the cross. We can't get right with God from a camp because Jesus already made us right on the cross. And so the message I have for young people, for all people, for Christians, is stop trying to get righteousness into your life. Instead, live out of your righteousness. Imagine if you spent your whole life trying to get rich when you had no idea you already had the money in your account. We've already been made righteous. We already have a right relationship with God. And so instead of trying to constantly get right with God, my encouragement for us is let's live in a way that reflects how righteous we already are. I don't have to earn Jesus's favor, his approval. I already have it. And so 
What that means for me is when I sin, when I mess up, instead of staying on the ground, I get back up and I keep walking. That means when I'm tempted to sin, because I already know my relationship with Jesus is, it's great because of the cross, because of what he did for me. That makes me not want to sin. It makes me stop and think not just, oh, am I breaking God's rule? I think, am I breaking God's heart? The heart of the the one who loved me so much he died for me? To restore the broken relationship between me and the Father, between me and Jesus. He did that for me because he loves me. Therefore, I don't, I don't want to sin. And yes, I still do sin. I struggle. But I want to sin so much less now that I understand what Jesus has truly done for me and what he's done for you. So again, I say, stop trying to get righteousness into your life. Instead, live out of the righteousness that you already have. So as we continue this righteousness series, you're actually going to hear from a lot of different pastors and their views on this issue. The first guy you're going to hear from is my friend Brian Stupar, the pastor of Calvary SLO Church. Here's Brian. So I want to um, talk, address the um, nuance, Aaron, that you brought up with regard to uh, people that are caught in endless cycles of messing up, feeling distant from God because of having righteous experiences and so on and so forth. Um, I think it speaks to the uh, cycle of guilt and shame. And when people, you know, quote unquote, mess up or they do something that they feel is uh, out of character. Uh, I was just having this conversation with a guy the other day. And this is this is how I approached it with him. Um, I can tell he he's a guy that has kind of come from a little bit of a highly self-righteous type of a background church that um, obviously has high standards, measurements and so on and so forth. And so I can tell the weight that was upon him as he was just kind of sharing, he was crying as a young dude, his you know, guy just kind of telling his story. And I could tell the guilt and shame cycle was kind of like coming up into his mind. And, and, I, and I told him, I says, right now, I can tell that there's this narrative in the back of your head in your mind that you're listening to that's feeding this guilt and shame cycle. I said, would, would you agree with that? And he said, oh, totally. And I said, the heart of the gospel is that God does something with that guilt and shame. And it becomes something that you don't have to do anything with. And I says, as long as you hold on to that, you are attempting to circumvent God's solution to the guilt and shame, and you are attempting to do something yourself with that guilt and shame cycle. Um, and the invitation that I was offering to him was to begin to recognize that God takes the guilt and removes it, takes our shame and clothes us in his righteousness and restores us. And the idea that I was trying to communicate to him within that context was that what voice right now is still condemning you and kind of got down to it was he was like it was my you know it's my voice it's my voice and then i asked him i said so your voice has higher standards than god's and he immediately just caught that and he was like ah and in the moment then i could just tell the light kind of turned on in his mind he got this smile that kind of started cracking across his face instead of tears and I said, so this this is the heart of it. Like you are setting yourself up. And this is the subtlety of it, you know, of what idolatry is, self-idolatry, self 
righteousness. You're looking at yourself as somehow having even higher standard than what God even expects. And when you fail, you condemn yourself. That's where the guilt shame cycle comes from. And it says on top of that, there's a whole nother layer of spiritual dimension. There's an unseen realm that is accusing you, we're told of in scripture. So there's this collusion going on between you and your self-righteousness and setting these standards up against yourself and you failing and then you condemning yourself. And on top of that, this other endless narrative captions, closed captions that are being played in the background, being superimposed over your mind from the enemy that's affirming everything that you're saying when the way that the light is going to break through life is going to break through is when you begin to realize that the idolatry is creating this constant cycle and jesus wants to set you free from that and so i pray for him but the point that i'd make is this cycle gets broken by confidently trusting or being loyal to identifying the gospel over all of these other narratives that sometimes can hijack our thinking. Brian, so good. Thank you so much for sharing that. What would you say to people on the flip side who struggle with self-righteousness, the idea of not trying to earn their way to God, but the people who feel like they've already arrived out of their own goodness, out of their own strength? What do you think, man? What would you say? Aaron, one thought that came to mind as far as uh, addressing, uh, maybe on a pastoral level, people that are struggling with self-righteousness and the condemnation and or um, condescension that oftentimes can stem from that towards others or towards themselves is there's a a practice that I oftentimes um, invite people as I chat with them about that to address. So the the practice goes, you know, I I want them to name um, what are the things that they are doing or the things that they know or think or assume to be true or righteous uh, that that give them the status of feeling competent or assured. Um, like I want them to speak it and I want them to name it. So for example, I was talking with a guy the other day. I said, name for me the things that you feel self-righteous as a result of. In other words, when you do it, you feel this sense of accomplishment, you feel Uh, good about yourself you feel like god might even be happy with you or when you don't do it you feel full of despair and it was interesting because he said well he thought about it and he comes back and he goes well i feel like when i have a very strong discipline on my eating you know he's a he's a fit dude and strong and whatnot and uh so i you know obviously health and well-being is important to him I said, uh, okay, so that's that's good that you have been able to identify it. So let me ask you this. How do you feel about other people that are fat or, you know, eat in ways that are obviously not consistent? Because I can tend to be very critical and judgmental towards them. So I'm like, good. Okay, this is good because we're getting somewhere now. What you're doing is you're identifying the various areas in your life right now that you look at as badges of righteousness for you as well as um, means by which you can alienate or eliminate or um, reduce, dehumanize, or to even demonize other people. And these are things that you're trusting in that are unhealthy and destructive. And this is where you need to now, in a fresh light, welcome in the gospel and what it says about you, what it says about all of these false edifices and uh, things that we erect. 
to trust in and let God do what God does, which is tear these things down because um, he loves us and to erect in their place um, a better, more appropriate approach to the gospel. Thanks so much, Brian. To conclude the show, we have a story about how righteousness can be found even in the middle of drug addiction and lies. The clip you're about to hear is from a sermon that I taught at Calvary Chapel Vista's high school camp in 2018. Here's the clip. You need to know this. Jesus is committed to righteousness. He is righteous even when we are at our worst. There's a dude that I love a lot. I asked him if I could share this story. I was just texting him last night, but he used to come up to these camps. I've known him for a long time. Some of you guys know him. Probably about six months ago, I am working in a coffee shop and he texts me and he's like, bro, my car broke down. Like, can you help me? Like, I just, I need to get to the gas station. Can you send me some money? Uh, I just need like 25 bucks and I can probably, you know, get some gas. You've always been so generous. Like, can you help me? And I was just like, yeah, of course. Like, whatever. Like, here you go. And I just got out the cash app and like sent him some money. And I was thinking, oh yeah, great. Awesome. God bless you. God go with you. Well, I find out months later, he contacts me and he's like, dude, I need to apologize to you. I've been apologizing to so many people because I actually, when I asked you for money, is because I have a drug problem. And I've been scamming my friends out of money to just fuel my drug problem. And, and, and he was talking about how he's in rehab now. And I was so proud of him because he was, that takes a lot of guts to confess that. He was calling every single person he had let down. Maybe some of you even got a phone call from him. And I was just so proud of him in that moment because, and this is why I said to him last night, I was like, dude, here's what you need to understand. Even at your worst moment, even when you were so backslidden and doing all these things that are wrong, in God's eyes, he saw you as righteous. That's so hard for us to comprehend because we think I'm not righteous unless I'm doing the right things. But because this guy was saved, because he had given his heart to Jesus, even when he was at his worst, God looked at him and all that was extended is forgiveness and love and also a passionate desire to help free him from his sin. I just think that's so beautiful. He was telling me today that he is now doing Bible studies to help other people who've gone through the same thing. He was telling me how he was street witnessing just yesterday and going out preaching the gospel to people. It's such a beautiful story of redemption. I just really want you guys to get this. Struggling is not the unforgivable sin. Backsliding is not the unforgivable sin. I'm not standing here giving you permission to sin. I'm giving you permission to fully realize how big God's love is for you with full hope that revelation will inspire in you a love and adoration for Jesus that will inspire you to want to not sin because you love him and you realize how loved you are. I feel like some of you guys here tonight, 
you you feel like I just, I can't be a good Christian, so why even try? Listen, if you feel like you're responsible for your own righteousness, you'll always give up. But when you realize that you're already righteous, that's when the world opens up. That's it for episode two of the Righteousness miniseries. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Good Line Podcast. This was episode two of the Righteousness miniseries. We hope you're enjoying this series. We hope that it's making an impact in your life. The whole heart behind this series was we wanted to just take a concept that a lot of Christians hear, a lot of Christians talk about, but not often do we truly know what it means. And so we wanted to break down the theological meanings of this word to study scripture and dive deep. And we're just getting started. Next episode three, we're going to be talking with a lot of different Calvary Chapel pastors about the idea of self-righteousness and what it looks like in the life of Christians and the life of pastors. I think it's going to be really helpful and really enlightening because I think self-righteousness is something that we all struggle with. I mean, I know I do. I don't know if you do, but I, I definitely know that I do. So <laughs> if you struggle with self-righteousness, please listen to this next episode. I think it's going to be extremely helpful. And thank you for listening to the show. If you like it, please go on iTunes, give us a good rating, give us a review, let other people know about this podcast. We're so excited about what God is doing through Good Lion. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of it. We love you guys. Stay tuned for episode three.